Our sermon text this morning, we continue in Luke. We're in Luke chapter 4. We'll be beginning in verse 16, actually 14, and going through verse 30. Uh, I'll remind you, Jesus has just gone through the temptation in the wilderness, and our text is going to tell us what happened next. And uh, so if you would uh, stand for the reading of God's Word from Luke 4, verses 14 through 30. This is God's Word. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out through all the surrounding country, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed upon him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is this not Joseph's son? And he said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, And none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. And when they heard heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. This is the word of the Lord. Father... What a change. What a stark contrast in these responses to the gracious words of Jesus Christ. And I pray this morning that you would confront us with the living Christ in this word and that we would respond differently. And I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Well, after the temptation... Of Jesus in the wilderness, the text tells us that Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit. Don't miss those words. In the power of the Spirit to Galilee. And we don't know how much time passes between his return and our text this morning. But it was long enough for Jesus to begin to gain a bit of a reputation. A report was going out about him in all the surrounding country around Galilee. And by the time he reaches Nazareth on this particular Sabbath day, the word of his works and preaching have arrived ahead of him. 
Now it was the custom of the time that a visiting rabbi was often given the honor to read from the Torah or the prophets and then to deliver a sermon on what had been read. And on this day, Jesus was the visiting rabbi. Look at verse 16. And he came to Nazareth where he'd been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. A number of questions begin to enter our minds, don't they? Did Jesus request the, request the scroll of Isaiah? Or was it an assigned reading of the day, like in a lectionary? We can't say for sure. But verse 17 says, Jesus unrolled that scroll that had been handed to him, and he found the place where it was written. Now, one of my seminary professors defines a sermon like this. He said, it's a word from God for this people in this hour. I think he's right. And just as I believe God is speaking to us, myself included, this morning through this text, that morning in Nazareth, God was speaking a word to that people in that hour. Now when Jesus finishes reading, he sits down. And you have to understand here, Jesus does not sit down because he's finished. He sits down because he's just getting warmed up. He sits down because he's, he's just getting started. You know, we often talk about sitting at the feet of a great teacher to learn from them. We say, oh, so-and-so, he studied under this or that renowned teacher when we're name-dropping, don't we? So when Jesus sits down to teach, everyone else in the synagogue that day is sitting at Jesus' feet to learn from him, possibly literally in position sitting below him as he teaches. Look at verse 20. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed upon him. Can you imagine that scene with me for just a moment? Presumably all of those in the synagogue are seated around Jesus. He reads this text from the scroll he rolls it up, he hands it back to the attendant, he takes his seat to begin teaching. And like I said before, his, his reputation had preceded him. And as he sits down, the text tells us that every eye in the room was fixed on him, waiting for the first words he will speak. I bet you could hear a pin drop at that moment. Now, it's possible Jesus spoke a lot, of, a lot of other words in that sermon, possibly. But Luke records for us a very short sermon, possibly the shortest. Look at verse 21. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Friends, that statement demanded a response from the people of Nazareth. 
A word from God had come to that people in that hour and it demanded a response. No living, breathing, thinking Jew could hear those words and yawn in apathy. With these words, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. With those words, Jesus tore open the hearts of all in the room. You see, what Jesus is saying is, I am the long-awaited Messiah. I am Emmanuel. I am the suffering servant who will take the stripes and heal my people. I am the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I am the one upon whose shoulders the government will be placed. I am the one whose rule and reign will have no end. I have come to release captives, to give sight to the blind, to preach good news to the poor. Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. And that statement, with all its pregnant meaning, demanded a response from the people of Nazareth. And I need to be honest with you. What follows has confounded me this week. I have sought to understand what happens next. It's strange, but it's true. Look at verse 22. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. Now, if the text stopped there, we would say, good, good. That's how they should respond. That's how we should respond. And I believe that, that the initial response was unavoidable. Back in verse 14, Luke told us that Jesus returned from the wilderness in the power of the Spirit. And that morning in Nazareth, Jesus and the power of the Spirit and the loving affirmation of his Father and with a clarity of purpose and calling that none of us can comprehend, he stood up and read with power and authority and conviction, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me to preach. Don't you understand? Jesus is not just recounting what had been prophesied. In that moment, he is reliving what has really happened to him at his baptism. God the Father has anointed him to do this work. And with every gracious word that came from his lips, that synagogue was filled with wonder and amazement. It was the right response to marvel at Jesus. It was the right response to marvel what was at what was happening in their midst. And it reminds me of Matthew 7, 29. Jesus had been teaching the crowds, and the text says, and when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. I believe the people in the synagogue that morning experienced the same reaction to Jesus' preaching. It was unavoidable. They marveled at it. But this is the confounding part. The response of the people moved on quickly. Look at the end of verse 22. And they said, is this not Joseph's son? 
as far as I can tell, it's the hinge in this account. Right here at the end of verse 22, the text takes a turn like tapping over the first domino. Something in this statement evokes a response from Jesus. Apparently, this statement by the people carried with it a heart of rejection. How do we know this? It's because of the way Jesus responds. Look at verse 23. And Jesus said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard that you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. Were they thinking, it can't be you? <laughs> we know you. We watched you play in the street. We hired you and your father to build this barn. We know your parents. It can't be you. They must have been thinking something like that because Jesus says, truly a prophet is not acceptable in his hometown. Have you ever shared the gospel with someone only for them to reject Jesus saying, it can't be him. He can't be who you say he is. That's the sin of the Nazarene synagogue. It can't be you. Or what about this one, familiarity? Has your familiarity with the story of Jesus bred contempt in your heart? Have you been so close to him, yet without faith for so long, you have no use for Jesus? I pray this morning God will take you back to the marveling at his gracious words. I pray God will astonish you with his gracious and authoritative words this morning. That with the crowds you would stand in awe of the one who can speak with such authority. But Jesus does not stop there. And some of us wish he had. Because it gets even stickier. Look at verses 25 through 27. Jesus continues. But in truth I tell you there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah. When the heavens were shut up three years and six months. And a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only Zarephath in the land of Sidon, a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. I told a friend last night, it seems like Jesus is picking a fight with these words. He's not picking a fight. He's picking a scab. The old wound of self-importance, of genetic superiority, of national pride has scabbed over Israel and under it infection has grown. And with these stories, Jesus tells the worshipers that day, God's plan is bigger. In the Old Testament, the people and often their leaders rejected the prophets. But that did not put the prophets out of business. No, God sent them to the Gentiles as well, to heal, to rescue, to proclaim. And you may say, yeah, but those were rare instances. A healed leper here, a resurrected widow's son there. Yes, but that's the point. What the prophets of old did in isolation, in isolated examples, 
of God's grace to the Gentile world. Jesus is about to do writ large over the whole globe. (laughs) Listen to these words from Isaiah 49. Jimmy texted me these this week and reminded me. The Lord is speaking to his servant, the Messiah, and he says, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribe of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you a light for the nations. That my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. It had always been Israel's call to take the salvation of Yahweh out everywhere. To the nations. And with these Old Testament accounts, Jesus has reminded the people that his mission is far bigger than proving himself to his hometown. And with this reminder, he has rebuked them. And how do they respond? It's almost unbelievable. But it's here, so we believe it. Look at verse 28. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. That is a far cry from all marveled at his gracious words. Ten minutes ago, maybe, all marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And now they're trying to murder him. Is that possible? Well, yeah. I want you to think about this scenario for just a minute. You wake up, you have a great breakfast, the best. And on the way to work, you hit all green lights, all green lights. You pull up to the building just as a front row parking place becomes available, and you take it, and it's not raining. And as you approach the elevator, the door opens, and you push the button whatever the floor number is, and you rise all the way to that floor without a single stop. Your morning has looked perfectly choreographed, like the Cleveland Rocks title sequence to the Drew Carey show. Trust me. Your blood pressure is at a perfect level. A smile is on your face. And as the elevator door opens... Your boss is waiting in the lobby, and he says to you, you're late, and that report is still not on my desk. What happens? What happens? In a moment, everything changes. Your blood pressure spikes, your body stiffens, and you immediately start searching for excuses to defend yourself from his rebuke. Am I the only one? Okay. And in in this moment, you say, it was the traffic, but it wasn't. My laptop crashed, but it didn't. Well, you didn't give me the data in time, but he did. Your heart and your motives have turned on a dime. I think that's what we're seeing in Nazareth. They walked into that room happy to have a visiting preacher 
the now increasingly famous hometown boy. But when he rebuked them for their faithlessness of doubting that he could be the one, they turned on him with instant murderous intent. Marvel gave way to malice, and it's astounding how quickly it happened. It seems they have forgotten the very mission that Jesus was on. What had Jesus come to do? What was he proclaiming? Hope for the poor? Rescue for captives? The blind receiving sight? Those under deep, dark spiritual oppression being delivered to sanity? But that good news was lost in their rage. And you know why? Their agenda and God's agenda had diverged at this point that these works of deliverance would be for the whole world, for Israel and for their enemies. It's the spirit of Jonah. Jonah was afraid of the Ninevites, they were known for skinning their captors and putting them on a spit. He was rightly afraid of their retribution. But you know what Jonah's main problem with God was? He knew if they repented, God would show them mercy. And he did not want his enemies to be shown mercy. God's agenda, Jonah's agenda, Nazareth's agenda had diverged. And their response was rebellion. And what about you? What will your response be when you discover, and you will, that your agenda and God's agenda have diverged at some point? When what you want and what God intends are at odds? You know, every Christian has to navigate that question. And it's important for us to recognize that rising aggression for what it is. It's the lingering remains of the rebels we used to be. It's the old man still clinging, though he be dead, to us. But by God's grace, the Holy Spirit calms us, doesn't he? It may take hours or months or, in some cases, years But it has been my experience that the rebel in me, and I think in many of you over and over, lays down the sword and looks at Jesus and says with Thomas, my Lord and my God, not my will but yours be done. So what about you this morning? Have you come face to face with Jesus? Has he rebuked you for your rebellion? Have you heard his gracious words? That he has come to save his people from their sins. Has that good news been like burning coals poured on your head? In your heart right now, are you making your case against Jesus' rebuke? Are you ready to drive Jesus to the cliff that you may be rid of him once and for all? 
If so, I plead with you, lay down your sword. You see, there was a right response that day for the Nazarenes. Even in that moment, there was an opportunity for repentance in Nazareth. It could have looked something like this. God help us, you're right. Just as we, Israel, have always rejected the prophets that God sent to us, just as we have always scorned their words and warning, even now we are on the verge of repeating the pattern. Jesus, we plead with you, save us from this rebellion welling up within us because we feel it. And with torn robes and ash-covered heads, the people of Nazareth that day had the opportunity to repent and stop the cycle. But no such repentance came to Nazareth that day. And they drove him to the cliff to kill him. Let me ask you this morning, if you are still a rebel against God, if you have your sword drawn, will repentance come to Signal Mountain this morning? Will repentance come to the Bachman Community Center this morning? Will repentance come to your row this morning? Will you now turn to Jesus and say to him, Jesus, help me, you're right. Just as I have always turned a deaf ear to your salvation, I'm on the verge of repeating the pattern. Once more, your gracious words have come to me. And I can feel the rebellion welling up within me once again. If that is you this morning, let me offer you more gracious words from Jesus Christ. From Matthew 11, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me because I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. That day in Nazareth, a room full of people had the blessed opportunity to do just that. They were sitting at his feet and he had proclaimed good news to them. And they responded with wrath. How will you respond this day in this moment to such a loving invitation from God to find the rest that Jesus gives, the forgiveness that Jesus gives, the new life that he gives. The people of the synagogue drove Jesus to the edge of the cliff that morning, intending to cast him headlong to his death. But that is not how the story ends. Look at verse 30. But passing through their midst, he went away. Did Jesus perform a sign for them after all? We can only speculate. Was his escape miraculous? Perhaps. But a few chapters later, Luke tells us that Jesus set his face to Jerusalem. 
I don't know if you've ever had your steering wheel become locked. You know, does anybody else drive an old car? That's, there's a detent or something in there, and the steering wheel can just get locked, and no power can break it loose. That's what Luke means when he says Jesus set his face to Jerusalem. At that moment, no temptation, no promise of kingdoms, no angry mob was going to deter Jesus from going to Jerusalem because just outside Jerusalem was the cross. All Jesus had promised, freedom from oppression, liberty for captive souls, salvation from sin, none of it could be ultimately delivered until he went to that cross. I don't know how Jesus escaped the mob on the cliff. Maybe it was miraculous. Or maybe it was the look in his eye that stopped the crowd. Perhaps the same authority and conviction and grace that had caused them to marvel in the synagogue had returned. Not as adoration this time, but as fear. The text does not give us any indication of a frantic escape, of a grasping at clothing. The text says, but passing through their midst, he went away. Friends, the escape is not the poignant part of that sentence. It's this. He went away. Those are frightening words. This morning, through the preaching of this text, God offers you salvation in Jesus Christ. If today you hear his voice, don't let him pass through your midst and go away. Don't be left standing on that cliff with your unfulfilled, murderous heart. It is such a lonely place to be. Rather, like the desperate woman in the crowd, grab onto his robe and put down your sword and say with Thomas, My Lord and my God. And if you do, what you will find is a gentle, lowly Savior giving you the rest for which you long. Let's pray. Lord, there are people in this room, almost certainly, who have still have their sword in their hand. And if they could find enough help, would try to push you to the cliff. And I pray that these gracious words would melt them in their rebellion. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me to preach good news to the poor. God save. Save the rebel this morning, we ask in Jesus' name.